we put so much care and effort into organizing things that it it just feels like just important that we recognize that our identity is in it and that other people's identity in it is in it, that there's people behind the collection that made it. It's not just like paper clips and, and staples and paper, but like, and you know, and post-its, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for joining the program today. I'm Lolita Rowe, the Community Outreach Archivist at Emory University Libraries, Stuart A. Rose Manuscript, Archives, and Rare Book Library. And you are listening to Rose Library Presents Community Conversations, a series of interviews with people connected to our collections. This episode features an interview between Anika Austin, Rose Library's visiting archivist for the Jeffrey Holder and Carmen de Labalade papers, and Tierra Thomas, visiting archivist for the Southern Jewish Collections. Uh, this is Rose Library Presents Community Conversations, and I'm Tierra Thomas. And I'm Anika Austin. Anika, I'm so excited to talk to you today because Same. I talk to you every day, but we don't really talk about our jobs. We don't. <laughs> well, we do, but like. We do, but it's always intermittent in between the office references and, and yeah. podcast recommendations. Yeah, and books. Yeah. And books. So what have you been working on? What do you do? You know, I'm working on the Jeffrey Holder and Carmen de Lavalade collection. And right now I'm a little bit overdue for finishing correspondence. But I'm, I'm labeling folders right now. I'm getting my description on. And that's been interesting because it's nice to just go back after already looking at a lot of the material and remember, oh, in the 1950s, Jeffrey started to take over his brother's company and ended up touring to Puerto Rico and met Catherine Randolph, who was one of his first patrons, who funded a lot of his early work and bought paintings from him. And then just go through the years and think, oh, this is what the 1980s looks like, you know? a bunch of copied pieces of paper, (laughs) this sort of thing. So it's been interesting to go back because actually I'm not supposed to be reading all these letters. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the first rule, never read. (laughs) Don't read anything. (laughs) So that's exactly why it's taken me three weeks to to finish correspondence. (laughs) So, okay, I want to admit a deep secret to you in front of as many people that are going to listen to this. I don't know anything about Jeffrey Holder. I know very little. So can you tell me, like, who Jeffrey Holder is? Uh, Jeffrey Holder did a lot, actually. There's a funny quote from him in an interview where he says, everybody in Trinidad knows how to paint and and design costumes and dance and put their own shows together. So I guess he just grew up with, (laughs) with everybody being able to do that. But so he was, he was a painter. He was a Guggenheim fellow uh, awardee for his painting. And he was a theater director. He directed The Wiz on Broadway, which won seven Tonys. And he was a, an actor. He was in uh, Live and Let Die. It was a James Bond film. 
And he did the narration for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which was the greatest <sighs> discovery. Also bringing in Carmen de Lavalade, like, who was she? Yeah, Carmen, too, did a lot. And actually, she's still alive and she's still working. I think the last thing that I know of her doing was a performance that she created and directed that basically encapsulated the events of her life and things that she's learned throughout her life. She's a very poised and just graceful woman who every letter that I read that I'm not supposed to read says, (laughs) Carmen, you know, just your beauty and grace walking through this room changed my life. She was in Harper's Bazaar, 100 Most Beautiful Women. And the quote was something like, if if grace is a definition, then Uh Carmen de Lavalade is the dictionary. (laughs) (laughs) So... She's a dancer and also a choreographer. She worked with a lot of big modern choreographers that a lot of people know of today, like Lester Horton, John Butler. She, in the beginning of Ailey's company, Alvin Ailey, her and Ailey toured Southeast Asia, and it was called the Delavalade Ailey Company at that time. And I think that, you know, she was one of the first people who got Alvin Ailey into dancing because she said, you're very athletic, you love you love moving around, you should come to Horton's classes. And, you know, and now we have this company that everybody knows of. So yeah. Carmen is very special. Like, even before this podcast, I, I thought, what would Carmen do? You know, <laughs> <laughs> and this collection is bulk Jeffrey Holder material, but... Mm-hmm. You know, that's probably because Carmen's still using her stuff, you know? So yeah. Is, so you're working with four collections, though. So I'm I not going to ask about every single person in them. Yeah. <laughs> you haven't been, you've worked with, like, two of them so far, right? Yes, yeah. I've only, so I finished processing the Burton Esther Lewin family papers, and I'm currently working on the Jack Boozer papers. So there's two other collections that I haven't gotten to. I don't know much about them yet and, and like, what's represented. But they're all about uh, Jewish people in Atlanta and their lives. Uh, Bert Lewin, he was a Holocaust survivor. And um, obviously it's an incredible story because, like— surviving the holocaust and like i feel like we you know we sensationalize that because we're like what would i do in that situation like so anybody who's come out of it we're like that's amazing but like it's obviously he was just trying to survive but like still going through his collection and seeing all the things he went through and then he still made it to atlanta and made a second life and made a you know found family here and then so the Jack Boozer papers are also interesting because he was a Emory professor. So there's so much about just like Emory going from going all the way back to the 50s and up through the 80s and just like all those things that I don't know about Emory like all those little things. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. It- <clears throat> One of the things about starting a new collection is even if you are not able to read everything in the collection, you do gather so much information from it. Mm -hmm. Do you think that learning about some of 
the history of Emory even around that time has influenced like what you think about the current kind of social and political and just cultural goings on of 2020 because some of that history I just feel like is it's all part of the shift that's going on this year and the more people know from learning about these collections like the more they're trying to speak out about what's going on now because you make that connection between this is what was going on in the 50s and this is how people were treated and this is where people went to get treated better and the same thing cycles through we're in 2020 it's kind of still happening now do you feel like some of that plays a part into how you're thinking about the collection all of the social not issues but just kind of things that people want to address in 2020 yeah I definitely think um it definitely plays into it like when I start a collection, I usually look at it and I try not to be like, I try not to put my own lens on it and think like, you know, this person is like, you know, I mean, neither of these collections that I've already worked on do I think that either of the um, uh, creators are like horrible racists. But like in the past, I've at other institutions, I've looked at collections where it's like, you know, he was a Confederate general, you know, and that it's hard not to look at that as a black woman and be like, this person is kind of terrible. I try to put some humanity on it, but I say that to say that, yeah, you look at things like race policy that was like being written in the 50s and you think, here's all of this like unresolved policy that was created where they were like hey like we we don't want black students here and then it was like a few years later so we got to do it oops like we know we wrote this policy but like now we have to like let them in so it definitely does paint a picture for how you know we've gotten to where we are um and it's it's weird because it's so it's like in a very specific concept like context it's not like universal even though I'm sure I mean we worked in university archives together at UNC and we both saw some things that were like you know some days it was like who knows what you're gonna find in this yearbook or this like fraternities scrapbook like um but so yeah it's not universal it's like in this specific context but you know that there's there's other things out there that are so similar like that have obviously shaped how things are today. But that makes me curious about, like, Carmen and Jeffrey, because you've told me how many decades of correspondence, uh, like, you've gone through the 50s, the 60s, 70s, 80s. I'm sure that there were a lot of things that they experienced that would, like, have a lot of implications to, like, the, the things that are going on now. Can you speak a little to that? First of all, I'd co-sign on what you said about just history, especially working in university archives and, like you said, uh, related to this collection but not totally related, is I would look through the, the theater department's photographic records at UNC and just it was pretty prevalent to use blackface or 
it, it was just like a normal thing. It was everywhere. Like (laughs) it was everywhere. And so, you know, looking at that and being someone who is approaching a collection, like a researcher approaching a collection and not necessarily knowing what you're going to get, I guess that leads me to a question later about some of the work that you're doing with conscious editing. But I definitely can see a through line of what theater looked like in the 50s, 40s, 20s, and some of the letters that I've been reading in the New York Times talking about just still inequity in the theater profession and performance in general. And so for Carmen and Jeffrey, I know one thing that's really interesting to me is Jeffrey is, or Jeffrey was Trinidadian American. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as soon as you cross the threshold into the U.S., it's like there is a certain expectation from you about the type of work that you make. I think it's just in the creative process of artists to think about how the work is being perceived by other people versus what you're just putting out. And Jeffrey was very, very vocal about saying, the work that I make is the work that I make. It comes from my imagination and it doesn't have to do with the perceptions that you're putting onto me. From the beginning, he was saying those things. And you can see throughout time just maybe how he leaned a little bit more into not necessarily active social justice, but just speaking more to Black artists as a diaspora have so many things to say that if you put people into a box like you've been doing, theater industry or arts industry, you're not letting people get to this whatever profound thing that they're thinking about creating or interesting thing or life-changing thing because they're automatically coming out of the gate with preconceptions that they have to keep battling. That seems like, based on looking at other artists' records, uh, just a struggle that's been going on since the beginning of time in this country, at least. So Carmen talks a little bit about typecasting because she she was an actor too talks a little bit about typecasting and directors not knowing where to put her that she had these certain experiences where like maybe she didn't get a role because of her race or her age or any of these things that have been hurdles or barriers for people of color and women over 40 or, you know, in Mm -hmm. the the performance industry. It's interesting to see the differences through time, but also Mm -hmm. just that things are. That similar thread. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. That is interesting. It's like, you can't just walk in the room and like be a performer or just like be, I mean, even you can't just walk in a room and like just be anything like it's always like well here's your whole identity first yeah and then you can be that thing it's like unless you're white like right yeah and that I do wonder about how that correlates with Jewish collections because we are like all putting identity first in a certain way I mean when we're when we're doing arrangement description and trying to get as much information across for researchers to know where to look and how something could supplement the research that they're doing. Can you talk a little bit about why you're connected to conscious editing? What made you decide to get into 
finding ways to describe collections in more ethical and kind of more holistic ways is what I look at conscious editing as. It feels like taking a holistic approach to description. Yeah, I feel like it's kind of a long story, but I'm going to try to make it brief. Okay. But I, so, <laughs> so I feel like when I started doing archive stuff back in undergrad, it like a lot of the time I felt like identity was like the elephant in the room. Um, and I mean, that could speak to that specific institution, but like, I remember um, I started working with a really great librarian and archivist, Jennifer Brown. And one day I was talking to her and I like jokingly whispered like, you know, because I'm black. And like, she was like, (laughs) why are you whispering? And I was like, well, everybody here is white and nobody's talking about it. (laughs) And um, so it wasn't until library school that I learned about conscious editing, but I just knew that I I wanted collections to like talk about identity more, like specific identities, because I I think it's important. Like it it does affect like the person who processes the collection, the person who made the collection, the person who donated it. Oftentimes their identity does matter, or at the very least their worldview, because just think about like the differences between what you're creating and what like I don't like I don't know Madonna is creating you know like just very different worldviews and it there's so many things behind it and I think that that starts with identity so that's kind of why I got into it and wanted to keep doing it and I was excited when I started working here to know that the anti-oppressive language working group was also working on things because I just feel I'm I'm just glad that as a field like people are like waking up and being like this is something we should care about because it it does matter we're not just like we don't come in here and we're like robots I mean we actually we put so much care and effort into organizing things that it it just feels like just important that we recognize that our identity is in it and that other people's identity in it is in it, that there's people behind the collection that made it. It's not just like paper clips and, and staples and paper, but like... And post-its. You know, and post-its, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and something that you said uh, about just knowing who the identity is of donors, for example, made me think of UNC and how just saying that a person, Pete Seeger, is a white musician, you know, just saying that is part of marking everyone instead of just marking the people who are so different from everything else you have in the collection that you have to say what their identity is. And part of that marking is like what keeps, what keeps it being about diversity instead of just about everybody is people and Mm -hmm. there are collections that have a lot of different types of people in them this donor was a white plantation owner who had plantation records that could potentially lead some folks to their family history and that should be just a little bit more known like I guess what I'm trying to say is 
you're taking the focus off of the donor by marking the donor and then saying that there are other pieces of this collection that don't just have to do with that person that has to do with a larger history and helps us be able to find things easier and more clearly because there aren't records donated from that time if if the institution wasn't collecting them from people who were not white plantation owners or whatnot, you know, and just being Mm -hmm. a little bit more transparent about what that is, what that looks like and what that collection includes is helpful for everybody. And so, yeah, the, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You bring up a really good point that I think makes, yeah, makes it more concrete because it is like, so many collections are not always created by the person who gives it to us. Sometimes they're just like, you know, the collector or when it comes to like plantation owners, like, you know, enslaved people didn't have any agency over their things, like more off, more often than not couldn't read or write. And a lot of those records don't even name them by their name or just name them by their first name and like we know nothing so definitely saying like not only yeah so pointing out like hey this is a white plantation owner definitely gives context for researchers as a place to go um to to like figure out more about those people in there that they're looking for. A lot of people do genealogy work too. Like people are are trying to find out like who their ancestors were and that's that's another way that they can you know, they're like white plantation owner and like that's a good place to start. Okay, so elephant in the room that we haven't talked about yet is that you are also an artist. You're a multi-talented person and that's like something you've researched. Can you tell me like I mean, we've never talked about it. Like, tell me more. Yeah. Yeah. I, me aside, me aside, yeah. <laughs> I really do think that embodiment is the next frontier for archives. Yeah. What is it? Well, to me, it's an investigation of liveness and presence and the ways that we either do or don't capture that. In written documentation or otherwise, there's some interesting research by Diana Taylor about the art. Well, she calls it the archive and the repertoire. The archive, in my interpretation of her work, kind of was developed out of our need to have written documentation for things, our need to be a little bit more cerebral or to consider the mind over what can be portrayed through the body. And the two aren't two separate things is I think what a lot of researchers researchers are trying to get to with embodiment. It's it's that there are just some things that are kind of visceral or energy-based that maybe can't be captured through writing. That's really not a new concept. Governmental treaties. <laughs> were conveyed through dance or, you know, the news in town could have been conveyed through dance in Mayan and Aztec cultures. So Spanish colonization happens and then everything needs to be written down. They uplift Mm. for the community who decide to learn how to read and to write. And then anything that's not written down is, you can't keep it. It's not, it's not something that 
you can hold on to. We can't pass it down to somebody else physically, you know. But oral history and movement-based learning and knowledge has always been a way that people passed things down. And so it's not that I think that embodiment is a new frontier. It's more just, can we look back at the way that people archived their policy and Mm -hmm. relationships and daily life through their bodies and value that just as much as we do a written document? Because there are a lot of things about performance that, of course, you can't capture. There are a lot of things that you can because the thing happens in a moment in time. It's ephemeral. It isn't going to happen again in the same way. And we can read critiques about a performance or we can maybe watch a video of it. But there is something that's not totally there. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. I really think, I, I feel like that's okay. And maybe noticing or noting the things that can't be written down and just saying that is all it is. Not pretending that there's something that didn't happen, that was a negotiation between people in a room doing one thing at one time that we will never really have a full grasp on. And it's not just performance, it's other things too. It's anything where there's some sort of process that then leads to a kind of final presentation of it. There, there's, some, there's a meeting place between what can be written about that process and what just has to stay in that present time. And right now that feels really not practical. It doesn't feel like a practical, tangible practice to have. Mm-hmm. To say, every time I process a collection I have to make a processing note that says there was stuff that happened at this moment in time that we cannot capture you know I mean that's tangible (laughs) why can't it be I don't know it seems like that would be every collection though I I haven't really figured out what it looks like to I guess elevate the fact that ephemerality is a big part of performance Mm -hmm. and we could just talk about it, but how does that affect how artists, performing artists, consider and organize their archive? Do they answer some questions about it and just put it with the rest of their papers? I don't know. Do they make a statement about the fact that they did something once and it's never going to be seen again? Or Right. I guess how do people work with paper as an archival medium, not just paper, but writing and physical document or written documentation, when their whole process is based on presence and ephemerality. It's based on something not being anymore. Yeah. You know, this is so interesting because it gets into like the just decolonization of archives in general. Like, a lot of Australian libraries are actually doing pretty well with this and, like, doing a lot of efforts with Indigenous communities. Like, I've seen um, libraries where they actually, in the physical space, have, like, created an area where, like, you know, a community can come in, they can sit in a circle and, like, tell 
tell an oral history like the way that it needs to be told and um, like just providing that space. Maybe we just make a, I don't know, <laughs> are we brainstorming now? Yes. <laughs> Maybe we just make like a, we make a general note where like, hey, like some things can't be captured. There are some fleeting moments that, I mean, it just gets into also the fact that Archives are awesome, yes, and they tell us things, but they don't always tell us the whole truth or even, you know, half the truth. We can't be for sure every time. I feel like that makes me think of what is the real thing about ephemerality, and it's that if if the things don't get funded, like if somebody doesn't decide to put a lot of their effort into collecting group me then then it is something that's gone and yeah. maybe that's okay yeah but but the oral histories of people or people actually performing oral histories in real time not the recordings of them is not necessarily valued then mm-hmm. then it's always going to kind of get swept away so maybe it is just that the awareness and the value of saying that there are more than just written documents that that pass along history is really all yeah. we're looking for, you know? Just yeah, you're right. Let's get people in a circle and let's say that that's valuable for them to just pass it on. Nobody has to record it. It's just now with whoever was there, they have that history and and we think that's okay, you know? That's a good note to end on. We did it. We got on a podcast. They let us talk. <laughs> <laughs> Community Conversations is produced by Lily Turow and Nick Twimlow. Jacob Chisenhall is our editor. Music created by Sister Sai. We are grateful for the support provided by our colleagues at the Rose Library. Jennifer King, director of the Rose Library, and Yolanda Cooper, dean of Emory Libraries. Special thanks to Anika Austin and Tierra Thomas. Join us next month for a conversation about Rose Library's African-American collections and the legacy of our departed colleague and most recent curator, Dr. Pellin McDaniels III. For more information about Rose Library and our other podcast series, Behind the Archives and Atlanta Intersections, please visit us at rose.library.emory.edu and follow us on the Rose Library Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find Community Conversations and our other podcasts on all your favorite podcast feeds.